we spent two days, two straight days, talking about one theological concept, and that is this, that God needs nothing from you. God needs absolutely nothing from you. God needs absolutely nothing from me. He does not need, now listen, don't confuse need and want, okay? God wants you. He is desperate for you. He is longing for you, but he does not need you because to suggest that God needed you would make him inadequate. If he, need, if he needed something from me, then he would be inadequate because he'd be in submission to me. God does not need my worship. God wants my worship. God does not need my prayer. He wants my prayer. God needs absolutely nothing. So good we set the alarm off. God needs nothing from me, okay? So follow me with this. God needs nothing. He does not need you to protect his reputation. He does not need you to make him look good. He does not need you to say good things about him. God, no, it's okay. God bless you. I got kids at home. That means nothing to me. I'm, I'm good. Uh, God needs nothing. He needs absolutely nothing. Now, here's what that does to our soul. Because if you woke up here today, God doesn't need you to be here, but you're here, right? God wants you. Don't, don't confuse need and want. Here's what that does. That means if God doesn't need it from us, but he wants it from us, then I don't have to do anything. I don't have to be here. I don't have to read my Bible. I don't have to pray. I don't have to worship. Now listen, God wants those things, and I want those things, but here's what that does. It means I don't have to, I get to. When you go from I don't have to, I get to, everything in your life becomes an act of worship. So when it goes from, I have to be here, because if I'm not here, God's going to be mad at me, and if God's mad at me, he won't answer the prayer. Look, God is not transactional, he's transcendent. God is not waiting to make a transaction with you, he transcends you. He will do it in spite of you. He will do it no matter what you do for him, because he doesn't need you. He just wants you. So when we go from need to want, we realize I don't have to, I get to. That means everything is worship. You don't have to be here. You chose to be here. That's worship. You woke up early. You were tired from everything that you did this weekend, and yet you chose to come. to God didn't force you to come to church. You chose to be here. That's worship. You chose to wake up and meet with God this morning and worship the Lord and read your Bible. He wants that. That blesses him, but he doesn't need that. You know who does need it? We do. We need it. I, I shared this. Let's just, let's just keep going. Why I told you I come from one week of being with all these people that are way smarter than me, and now I'm all wound up. Uh, let me find my, no, 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 Psalm 22. Go with me real quick. Let's just, let's dance in this for a moment. Psalm 22, 22. This is not part of burnt stones, by the way. <laughs> Be a long afternoon. All right. Psalm 22, 22. David declares this, right? Let's, let's keep going here. God doesn't need me. God wants me, but he needs absolutely nothing from me. That means I don't have to, I get to. And if I don't have to, I get to. That means everything that I'm doing under that freedom of grace that God, listen, if God were to force you, if God were to make you, that's abuse. 
Force is abuse. God's not abusive. God's gracious. Come if you want. Don't if you want. Follow me if you want. Don't follow me if you want. He never, he never ever positions himself as a person who has a desperate need from you. If he did, he wouldn't be God. So Psalm 22, 22. This is David. There's a lot of power in this, okay? He says, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. Who is David? And listen, he's, I'll give you the setting that he's in. He says, I will praise you among your assembled people. So David is saying, I'm in church among your assembled people, and I will praise your name among the people. I will proclaim your name among the people. Why? Who needs it? Who needs his worship? We do. God doesn't need it. What did God say? He said, if you don't worship me, I'll make rocks cry out and worship me. It doesn't matter to me. I'm going to get my worship, and I don't need it from you. I would like for it to be from you, but you are not on my desperate needs list, right? So we get to, and when we get to, who who needs that? We need it. He says, I will proclaim your name among the people because they need it. I will worship you in the assembly because they need it, right? God wants it. He is glorified from it, but we need it. I need to see you worship. You need to see me worship. In all of our hurt, in all of our pain, in all of our dysfunction, in loss and in gain, and when things are great and when things are bad and when I'm up and when I'm down, you being here seeing me worship and me being here seeing you worship Builds my soul. You catch me? You following me? So why do we worship in here together? Well, one, we want to glorify God. And he wants it, but he doesn't need it. But who needs it? Maybe the person sitting on your row. Maybe the person who's sitting on your row who barely made it to church and can't pay their rent and doesn't know what they're going to do. And then they see you and they know that you've been in a similar situation, but you are fully surrendered to God. You are fully trusting him. You are fully worshiping them. What do you think that does for their soul? They need it. So we need each other, and we need each other so that we can give God what he wants. But never confuse that. We don't give God what he needs. We give God what he wants because God doesn't need us, which means our lives are a living sacrifice, as Paul says in Romans 12. And everything that I give him is an act of, of worship because he's not forcing me, which means I get to. Amen? Amen. All right, Burnstones, build again. I love that song that we sang. Uh, it, it's just, I told you you're part of the creative process with us, right? You are part of helping us. We are in this together. We introduce this, you respond back. It may be different a week from now, it may be different two weeks from now, but together we create something together that I believe is going to be a greater blessing to the body of Christ. But burnt stones, Nehemiah 4 2, we're in a season of burnt stones where Sanballat comes to Nehemiah. After the Israelites, after the nation of Israel has been totally crushed, they're in Babylonian exile, the the city has been burnt to the ground. Literally, all of people of prominence have been removed and exiled. All that is left are the poor and the uneducated, and they don't know what to do, and they roll in, and they absolutely decimate the city. They break it all down to the ground. They rip out every gate. They tear down every wall. What they're doing is exposing their protection. They're saying, you're no longer protected. You're no longer safe. You should be ashamed. You should be humiliated. They rip out all the gates. They burn it all to the ground. They pile it in the middle of the city, and Nehemiah is the guy God calls to rebuild the 
the city, and he shows up, which is where we're going to be today, Nehemiah chapter 2, and he sees a city in ruins. He sees piles of burnt stones, and he's rallying people together, and he's saying, let's rebuild this city. And Sanballat comes by, and he's going to be introduced today, and he says, do you really believe God can do something with burnt stones? Nehemiah 4.2. Do you, do you really think God can take these burnt stones and bring them back to life? Burnt stones? Come on, burnt stones? Burnt stones? We know they build again. We, we, we can cheat and read the whole story, but we know the heart of God. We know that God wants to take the rubble of your life, the disaster of your life, the secret things of your life, the, the burnt stones that you may have. God wants to take those, and he wants to rebuild you into something that glorifies him, something that honors him, something that brings him all of the worship that he is due. That is the heart of of burnt stones. All right, to the word, shall we? Nehemiah 2, 11 through 20. So I arrived in Jerusalem. If you haven't been with us the past couple of weeks, uh, you can catch all of the Jewish history that led up to this moment. If I did it for a third week in a row, nobody would come back after, after that. So just go watch it on YouTube or the podcast. But here we are. Nehemiah arrives in the city. So I arrived in Jerusalem. He's there. Three days later, I slipped out during the night, taking only a few others with me. I had not told anyone about the plans God had put in my heart for Jerusalem. Interesting. We took no pack animals with us except the donkey I was riding. After dark, I went out through the valley gate, past the jackal's well, and over the dung gate to to inspect the broken walls and burned gates. Verse 14. Then I went to the fountain gate, to the king's pool, but my donkey couldn't get through the rubble. Imagine. Think of, that's a beautiful picture of where he's at. City burnt to the ground so bad not even his donkey could make the trek. It is just piled up burnt stones of rubble that is left. Donkey couldn't make it. Let me find my place. King's pool. But the donkey couldn't make it through the rubble. Verse 15. So, though it was still dark, I went up to the Kidron Valley instead, inspecting the wall before I turned back and entered again at the valley gate. The city officials did not know I had been out there or what I was doing, for I had not yet said anything to anyone about my plans. I had not yet spoken to the Jewish leaders, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or anyone else in the administration. Verse 17. But now I said to them, you know very well what trouble we are in. We talked about that last week when Nehemiah gets the report and the place is a disaster. He says, you know very well the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. Then I told them about how the gracious hand of God had been on me and about my conversation with the king. They replied at once, yes, let's rebuild the wall. So they began the good work. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab heard of, what, of our plan, they scoffed contemptuously. What are you doing? Are you rebelling against the king, they asked? Verse 20, I replied, the God of heaven will help us succeed. We, his servants, will still rebuilding this wall. But you have no share 
legal right or historical claim in Jerusalem. Nehemiah arrives. And when he arrives, he arrives, as you can imagine, to a group of people that are absolutely beaten down. They're worn out. They're tore up from the floor up. They're just exhausted. They have no hope. The king, as we talked about, has pulled back on the freedoms that he had given them. And they're just standing in a mess, an absolute mess, and they don't know what to do. And Nehemiah, in Nehemiah 2, 11 through 20, he steps into a mess, and he's getting ready to fix the mess. But before he fixes the mess, he's got to fix the mindset. You understand something, right? What's going to fix the mess you're in is not what you do, but the mindset that you have about it. The way that you approach it, as we're going to see with Nehemiah. Anyone ever stepped into a mess? Come on. I mean, who's got kids, right? Same people. Uh, I'm talking about a mess, and this could be a mess at work. This could be a mess in your business. This could be a mess at your home. But when you step into a mess, you have to have the right mindset. I've got a friend and we have a phrase that we use all the time. I got several friends. There's, there's a couple of us in this group. But we always say, uh, hey, man, how you doing? And the other guy's going to reply, man, I'm knee-deep in doo-doo. <laughs> you can tell we all had kids, right? Man, I am knee-deep in doo-doo. But let me tell you the genesis of where knee-deep in doo-doo came. So my friend, he was asleep, uh, as most people do in the middle of the night, except toddlers. They don't. Um, he was asleep. And as he was asleep, his son had something go wrong, he ate something for dinner, what, don't know, but he had explosive diarrhea in his bed. And after that, no, 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 after that, he was like sleepwalking, he was half asleep, half awake, some of you adults, I can't been there, <laughs> no, he had, he just, he had a really, really bad situation. So he wakes up, and he walks down the stairs half asleep, right, I mean, I'm talking head to toe covered, right? It's everywhere. He squish, 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 walks down the stairs. He goes down to the laundry room that he thought was the bathroom, and he finishes the job in the laundry room, right? Totally, like, completely nearly passed out. And then he turns around. He walks down the hallway, squish, 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 and he gets into his dad's room, and he leans down to his dad, and he says, dad, dad, his dad's friend of mine, oh, He's like, what in the world? He looked at him. His son looked at him and he said, Dad, I need your help. There's crap everywhere. <laughs> and his dad was like, what? What do you, what do you, and he looked at him and he was like, oh. And his son had touched him and there was like handprints on him. And he was like, what? What? And he gets up and he goes out. And he said there were footsteps all the way down the hallway. And then he goes down the hallway. And when he gets down to the hallway, he's like, he goes, the laundry room? Like, you th- what did you do in the laundry room, right? And then he goes up the stairs, and he follows the footsteps, and he goes to his room, and his bed and everything is a mess. And he looks at it, and he says, oh, my gosh. And his son looked at him, and he said, Dad, am I in trouble? And he said, man, I had this moment where the Spirit just gave me the right response. And I looked at, back at my son, and I said, do you feel better? And his son said, yes, daddy, my belly feels way better. He said, then you're not in trouble. Let's clean up the mess. And that is that has become a phrase in their home. That has become a phrase. When we say knee deep in doo-doo, that means we, we may be in a mess, but God is doing something in the middle of this mess. 
that there is something that can come out of this mess that can encourage my soul. There's something that can come out of this mess that can help me with what I'm going through. When we, so we're, let's go need even do together today, right? Let's have, it is the mindset that you bring into your mess that makes all the difference in the world. Your marriage is a mess. It's not what you do today. It's the mindset you have about your spouse that changes it. Challenges with your kids, it's not if you go buy them ice cream after church, it is the change of mindset that you have about your children that will make all of the difference. When you have a mess, you got to have the mindset. Nehemiah gives us the mindset, and he gives it to us in three pieces. Catch these. I love these. First is discernment. When you need deep and doo-doo, I'm going to quit saying that. That's just weird, right? If you, especially if you don't have kids. You're like, man, would he stop? Uh, when you have a mess on your hands, discernment is the first place you have to go. Catch what Nehemiah does. If, if you were really listening, you caught this. Nehemiah 2, verse 12. I slipped out during the night, taking only a few others with me. I had not told anyone about the plans God had put in my heart for Jerusalem. Didn't say anything. Didn't say a word. He had the crowd there. He had people serving him there. He had everyone there. He didn't say anything. Nehemiah 2, 16 through 18, he does the same thing again. It says, the city officials did not know I had been out there or what I was doing, for I had not yet said anything to anyone about my plans. I had not spoken to the Jewish leaders. So what do we have here? We have it. He, he doesn't tell the crowd that's there. He doesn't tell the opposition that begins questioning him, and he doesn't tell, initially, he doesn't even tell the leaders, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or anyone else in the administration. Verse 17, but now I said to them, can I just, I, I will just say, we're in Huntsville, Texas, right? We can just, we can talk straight with each other. There is a whole lot of discernment, there's a whole lot of wisdom, and there is a whole lot of godliness in knowing how to shut your mouth. There is a whole lot of grace from God. When you step into a mess, knowing how to keep your mouth shut, and then, did you notice who he talked to? He didn't talk to his peers, he didn't talk to people that were with him, he didn't tell the opposition as he was traveling through. He told only the people that could help him. The only people he spoke to about what he was doing and about what God had placed in his heart were the people who could help him, the people who could do something about it. I'm telling you, we, we, it feels like we take more things to social media than we take to Jesus. We take more things to a social post and put it out there for the world's approval and for our friends to ordain it, and for our friends to okay it, and for our friends to approve of it, we put more stuff out there in that fashion than we do putting it before the Lord and letting the Lord work for it. And here's what happens. When, you, when your instant reaction to something that God has told you to do is to post it to social media, all of a sudden you've posted it to the realm of approval and you begin living that out according to the approval, the affirmation, or the, the embarrassment of what people think about it. 
it's all of a sudden you have changed who you are serving. From I am serving God, and God has called me to do this, and I'm keeping my mouth shut until he tells me to do so, and I'm going to walk in discernment here to, hey, maybe God wants me to do this. Hey, everybody, I think this is what I'm going to do, and I'm going to change lives with this, and this is where I'm at, and this is everything that I'm going to be a part of. And then when something happens two weeks from now, or it's not going as good, what do we, what do we have to do to follow it up? We're going to dig deep here for a minute, okay? What do we have to do to fix it? we got to lie for God. we got to lie for God. Hey, I saw you posted about you doing this in ministry and you going here. How's all of that going? Well, I can't make God look bad. So, oh, man, bless God, brother. Everything's working out wonderfully. Man, we are reaching people left and right. I saw, look, I'm a pastor. I'm preaching to myself here. I don't preach at you. I preach with you. Middle of COVID, middle of COVID, you're preaching these sermons that look like an execution video where it's just you in your head on a video and you're talking for 35 minutes. And yet you say, hey, man, you get around pastors. It's like COVID's incredible. God's doing an amazing work online, reaching so many people online. I was depressed during COVID. I was miserable when we were when we were gathering in person. I had to wake up every day and recite confessions to myself to talk myself out of just being miserable, grouchy, and angry because the church was shut down. But you know what I did? I lied for God. Tried to make him look good. We, We do this. And we do this because we don't even realize we're living in the court of public opinion. How do we? Let's keep going here, right? Because when we stop Lying for God, we can be honest with our own soul. Look, when you, when you stop lying for God, and you stop putting on this exterior of God's doing great things, everything's wonderful, and God does do great things, but he does great things in different ways. We try to protect his reputation. God doesn't, remember, God doesn't need us. God does not need you to protect his reputation. God doesn't need you to say things that make him look good. It can be, man, I don't understand why I'm going through this. I am walking through one of the most difficult seasons of my life, but I trust God. That's God doing a good work. Just as good as, man, things have never been better. Things are incredible. We, we enter this place where we have to lie for God. When we quit lying about God, we can start living the truth that God is doing in our soul. And you can do this. Watch. You can do what Jacob did, and you can wrestle with God and find him faithful. You can tangle with God and find him. You can do what Job did. You can say what Job said. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the Lord. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the Lord. You can do what John did in Matthew chapter 11. And you can question Jesus and find him faithful. And find him gracious. And find him good. You can do what the man did in Mark chapter 9. And you can say, Jesus, I need you to heal my son. And Jesus said, with God, all things are possible. And he replied back, I believe you can. Help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. I'm really struggling. I believe you can. Help the things that I'm not believing right now. What does Jesus do? Heals his son. Heals his son in the face of his doubt. Why? He's being honest with his soul. He desires truth from where? The inward parts. The deep parts about you. And listen, the the deepest truth about you is not what you post on social media. It's what you're scared to post on social media. 
The deepest truth about what God wants to do in your soul is not what you're excited to post and tell everybody about. It's what you're scared to say. It's what you're hesitant to say. And the first step to digging deep within your soul and discovering what God is really trying to do is discernment. And discernment begins with shutting your mouth. Follow me. Solomon agrees with us. Proverbs 10, 19, he says, too much talk leads to sin. Be sensible and keep your mouth shut. Proverbs 17, 28, even fools are thought wise when they keep silent. If you're not too bright out there, I got a way for you to make it look good. If you're not very bright, I got a way for you to make it look good. Just keep silent with their mouths shut. They seem intelligent, the great Abraham Lincoln quote, you know. What is it? A, a, if you're a fool, don't open your mouth. If you open your mouth, you remove all doubt or something like that. I don't know. Butchered it. History teachers in here, they'll, they'll know better. Proverbs 21, 23. Watch your tongue and keep your mouth shut and you will stay out of trouble. What we do when we have discernment with what we say is we keep ourselves from living in the approval of other people. From just blasting it out there all of the time, talking about it all. But we're discerning, and we're wise, and we walk slowly, and we talk slowly, and we declare slowly. We begin to live in that wisdom where God has the ability to be truthful with us, and we can be truthful with him, and we can work through what he's trying to do. All right, we got we got to keep rolling. Number two is authority. He says, number one, your mindset in a mess is discernment. Learn how to keep your mouth shut. Don't walk in and start making empty promises. Don't do all of these things, but learn to be discerning. Number two, you got to know who is in authority. If you're in a mess, you got to know authority. Nehemiah 2, 17 through 18. He says, but now I said to them, you know very well what trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. Then I told them about, number one, the gracious hand of God. The gracious hand of God is an authority that he mentioned. He says, look, they wanted to know what we're going to do, and I told them about the gracious hand of God. Number two, the gracious hand of God has been on me and about my conversation with the king. If you'll remember, he went to the king. He was the king's cupbearer. The king said, Nehemiah, why on earth are you so sad? And he told the king, and the king said go, and he knew exactly what he needed. He laid out the list of needs. The king approved it all, and here we are. So he says, the gracious hand of God and the king have empowered me to do this. Now watch this. Nehemiah 2, 19 through 20. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab heard of our plan, when, we, when resistance came in, when the mess began to, to accelerate, when it began to get more difficult, he said they scoffed contemptuously. What are you doing? Are you rebelling against the king, they asked. Verse 20, I replied, the God of heaven will help us succeed. We are his servants. We, his servants, will start rebuilding the wall. But you have no share, legal right, or historical claim in Jerusalem. Did you notice something in 19 and 20 that's missing from verses 17 and 18? He leaves out the king. He leaves out the king. Look, the, the words of a king are assurance, but God has the authority. 
door. I, I can assure you with some good words, but, but God has the authority to do what God wants to do, how God's going to do it according to the word that he has given us. And you see, when trouble began to accelerate, he told his people who were with him, hey, the king's okay with this and the gracious hand of God is with us. But when opposition stepped in to shut him down, he said, you cannot step to the gracious hand of God that is here. There are three things at play here that I want you to catch in that last part in verse 20. He says the, the God of heaven. Number one, he's superseding their, their power. So Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem are regional governors. They're the regional governors of the area. They're the ones with the power. They're the ones who can say, you can go into that area, you can stop in that area. You're going to get arrested, you're going to get executed. Yet, who does Nehemiah appeal to? The gracious hand of God, the God of heaven. So number one, he supersedes their power. Number two, he says, we are his servants. He supersedes their politics. We don't serve you. We serve God. We serve the God of heaven, and if you think you're going to stop what God is trying to do in me, number one, you're going to have to deal with God, and number two, you don't have that authority with me because I am God's servant. I am serving him. I am called by him, and I am led by him. And then number three, he says, you have no share, legal right, or historical claim. They were the regional governors. He's superseding their position. He's superseding where they sit. He say, you may think because there's a contract that says this is yours, that this is yours, but I've got news for you, friend. You don't have it. It's not yours. Because it may be where you dwell, but it's not who you are. It's who I am. Because I have the authority to walk in it. Listen, when you are facing a mess, you have to remember who has the highest authority. And in the mess, we begin to believe that the mess has authority. The mess that you're in does not have authority over you. The gracious hand of God has authority over you. The God of heaven and earth has authority over you. And you are his servant, which means the enemy has no claim, no historical right, and no legal right to you. You may be living in it, but you're not of it. God is doing something different. I remember, I've told you this before, I know, I remember when I was a kid. Uh, first car, 1985 Oldsmobile Cutlass. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking about? 1985 gray Oldsmobile Cutlass had those wire spoke wheels on them. Man, I was rolling. Bought it from a Catholic guy. I had the, the Hail Mary sitting there right on the front. Smelled like cigars because all he did was smoke cigars. I'm talking when you say G-Wagon, I had it. It was just cool, man. It was, my friends loved it. We bought a, a giant subwoofer and put it in the trunk. That thing sounded like a bunch of change in the dryer. It was just like, we were driving, it felt like it was going to fall apart, man. I love that car. So all my friends and I, we decided to drive downtown to a Royals game. I'll never, I can picture the moment in my mind, new driver in this car, and I'm, I'm taking, I'm, I'm pulling up to a turn lane, but it's not a turn lane when they're exiting everyone from the stadium, right? I didn't know that. So I'm getting there, and there's this police officer, and he's waving me on. So I'm like, okay, cool. 
gas it, begin to hook the left turn when it's not supposed to be a turn, and there is a semi coming directly at my car. My friends are screaming, we're dead, we're dead. I slammed on the brakes because I mean, it's a smart thing to do, right? Semi coming at you, let's stop in front of it. But I, I slammed on the brakes, and we literally covered our heads. I thought for sure we were all gone. And then all of a sudden we heard this whistle blow, and after the whistle blew, we looked up and we were like, are we in heaven right now? Does Jesus have a whistle? He's calling fouls. You know, like, where are we? we heard the whistle, we looked up, and when we looked up, there's a police officer, and he was standing there like this, and that semi had stopped right in its tracks. And I saw the perfect illustrate that semi had all the power to crush us, but it didn't have the authority. Had all of the power to, yeah, go ahead, clap for the Lord. These little 13 toll, putting for birdie, it's beautiful, go. All the power, but no authority. He couldn't do it. That, that is how we approach this mess. Mess may be more powerful than you. You may be up against an entire army that is looking to take you down. You may be coming out of 70 years of exile with your city burnt to the ground. And you're the only guy that God has called to raise up this rubble with nations that are looking down on you, talking down to you. And they may have more power. They may have legal right. They may have claim to everything. But they don't have authority. You walk in that authority. Stand in the authority that God has given you. The gracious hand of God is upon you. The God of heaven is before you. And you are his servant. All right, how do we finish off? Mindset of a mess. No better place to go than identity. Mm, I love this. Nehemiah 2, 17. It says, but now I said to them, you know very well what trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Notice his language here. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. This is a disgrace. But you know what was a disgrace? That Hebrew word for disgrace is a word that is embracing personal shame and personal embarrassment. So what he's saying is, let us end this disgrace. The disgrace is not the condition of Jerusalem, it's the condition of the people. The disgrace is a bunch of beat up, torn down, hurting people that are content, living, beat up, torn down, and hurting. That's the disgrace. He said, let's end this disgrace of personal shame, personal embarrassment, personal hurting. This does not belong here. Nehemiah 2, verse 20. I replied, the God of heaven will help us succeed. We are his servants. We start rebuilding. We as servants will start rebuilding this wall. I know we just read this, but it it applies to this identity. But you have no share, no legal right, or historical claim in Jerusalem. That is 100% an identity statement. Because Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem had all three. You want to talk from a purely worldly standpoint? They had all three. They had the share. It was their land. They had the legal right. They were the governors of it. And they had the historical claim. They had been there 70 years. He's saying it may be your land, but it's not who you are. It's who we are. It's who we are as God's children. What does that speak to you? 
that nobody can take your inheritance you have with the Lord. Nobody can take what God's given you. Nobody can take that away. That's who you are. And it's a disgrace to think otherwise. Listen to Psalm 48, verse 2. It's a description of how Jerusalem should be. It's how we should see it. It's how we should experience it. He says, it is a high and magnificent. The whole earth rejoices to see it. Mount Zion, the holy mountain, is the city of the great king. In other words, he's saying, this place may be torn down, but this is where God dwells. And if this is where God dwells, this is what I'm standing for. And some other people may have it, and they can have it as long as they want. It's not their claim. It's not their right. It's not their land. It is who God has called us to be. And through our identity, we are going to live that out. You have to know whose you are. You have to know who. If you walk into a mess, that mess is going to try and steal your identity. And that mess is going to try and tell you this is now who you are. You are broken, you are hurting, you are divorced, you are ashamed, you are this, that, and the other. That mess that you are in will try to steal your mindset. You have to know who you belong to. You, even if the whole earth is against you, even if they really do have the land, even if it really is theirs, and even if they do have historical claim there, and even if it is legally that you've got to know who you are. You are his child, and you are his servant, and he has called you. So it doesn't matter what they're trying to take from you. They can't take what's yours in the Lord. It doesn't matter how they're trying to manipulate you. They can't supersede God's power. It doesn't matter how they're trying to finagle their way into what you have. It's not going to them because it's who you are. Let me finish with this story. It gets me every time. There's a study done of two twin brothers. And these, these twin brothers uh, were interviewed for the full purpose. It was a sociological experiment. And inside of this sociological experiment, they found twin brothers, identical twin brothers. One was a highly successful guy, white picket fence, big, beautiful house, wonderful children, was following the Lord, and everything was, he just had like the picture-perfect American, American dream, if you will. Other brother was homeless, addicted to heroin, absolute mess. These are twin brothers, identical twin brothers. And so at the end of the, the experiment that they're talking to him about, they ask one of the brothers, they ask the successful brother, and they ask the, uns, the, the brother who's just ran his life into the ground, they ask him the same question. Why are you the way you are? Why are you the way you are? Here's what was striking. Talk about a, a, an incredible experience. This is what was striking. Both brothers had the exact same answer. Both brothers said, our dad was an alcoholic. Both of them. Incredible, right? You have one that has this life that the world would see as way up here. You have one that sees this life as the world would see as way down here. You have one that is struggling and hurting and broken. You have one that is thriving and growing and living out all of these wonderful things. And they have the exact same answer. Same, I mean, they look the same. They're the same. They're the same person. And they have the exact same answer. My dad was an alcoholic. But the next thing they said changed everything. The successful brother said, my dad was an alcoholic. And I decided I wanted something more. I decided God had something better for me. I decided I was not going to live my life like that. 
second brother said, my father was an alcoholic, and I realized that's all I'd ever become. My dad was an alcoholic, and I realized that's all I'd ever become. See the mindset? You see the identity? You see the identity they've placed on themselves? You see the identity? Well, let me ask you this question. What is the identity that you are living in that Jesus has already freed you from? You're his child. What is the identity that you are living in that Jesus has already freed you from? Because you're his. You may be a son of God, but you're still living as the boy of that jerk that told you you'd never amount to anything. That told you you weren't important, that never showed you any love, that never cared for you. Why are you still allowing that identity to define you when God has redeemed you? You are a daughter of Jesus. You are still living like that girl who was abandoned and broken and mistreated. But you're his child. You're a child of God, but you are living like that rejected little kid. You know what Nehemiah says? That's a disgrace. And that doesn't mean you're a disgrace. It means that's a disgrace. That sin and lie and a mess would begin to rob you of the identity that God has called you to. So what does he say? We end this. We build the walls. Because burnt stones, you build again, you have a new identity. You build again, you're no longer that person. God wants to build something in you. God wants to do something. We have to have discernment. We've got to know when to close our mouths. We've got to know who is in control, who has authority, and we have to know who we are and live it out and call anything less than that a disgrace. I'm not going to allow that disgrace to define me anymore. I'm going to be who God has called me to be.